Hello, Leslie. We're very happy to have you. We're happy to have all of you, but this is your church. And this morning, um, I am going to be speaking to you from Galatians again. This will be our 55th sermon on Galatians. I don't know what Carol's finding funny. And I've realized as I come to preaching on this text that it's worthy of a few weeks and it's only three verses. And you'll realize it's true as we get into it. Um, With this particular text, we end chapter 5 and we go into chapter 6, which you will be happy to note is the final chapter. I would like to ask you then to open your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 and we'll read verses 24 to 26. Galatians chapter 5 verses 24 to 26. This is the Word of God and it is eternally true. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, having commanded the church in Galatia, and by the way, when I say the church in Galatia, I often wonder how to, how to say that to you, because you might think that it's a little group like this. He's writing the group. It's read publicly. The elders and the pastors pour over it, and that's what we're talking about. But most likely it's not true. Most likely there were a number of churches in Galatia, and this was sort of a round-robin letter. And it was passed between them, okay? But he is speaking to the church in Galatia, and there were certain characteristics of that church. You know, if you go overseas, there are certain characteristics of, of Americans. And, and people know what the characteristics are. They're not stereotypes, they're not generalizations, they are, but they're true. And there are certain characteristics of a church in a particular geographical area. And so Paul is writing these Christians and he's commanded them to walk by the Spirit and then he set down a list of the fruit of the Spirit. And we saw in verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then the Apostle Paul picks up the larger theme of the book of Galatians as a whole, namely the division that was caused in that church by the false shepherds of circumcision. All right? That's the theme of the book of Galatians. Those who were troubling the Galatians, if you look at verse 12, you see him referring to those who trouble them, were causing division in the church. And this is why the works of the flesh that Paul names in verses 19 to 21 emphasize so heavily the sins of division. These false apostles were using the doctrine of circumcision. All that meant they were using this to divide the church. All right. Their goal was to divide the church. And so the Apostle Paul emphasizes in the fruit of the spirit, the things that lead to unity and in emphasizing Uh, the fruit of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, he also emphasizes the things that lead to division. And you'll see there in verse 20 that he lists enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. And then he ends by saying, what about these things? 
he ends by saying, those who practice such things are not helpful to the church. Those who practice such things, we all practice such things. We all just need to be encouraged to not practice such things. Those who practice such things are good Christians just like the rest of us, but they need to be encouraged to not live that way. Now, that's not what he says. We'd all be much more comfortable if he did say that. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, those who practice such things, what? Come on. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's Paul again. You know, the same one that gives us the doctrine of eternal security that once saved, always saved, is telling us that the people that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we think, you know, Paul, that's really not helpful. Right? It isn't. I mean, who needs to hear that? I already know I'm guilty. You know, why step on me? You know? I mean, Paul, there's not anybody in the church that isn't guilty of some of these things. Enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying. What are you trying to do? Discourage the brothers? And you see, we never, ever, ever want to submit to the Holy Spirit. We always want to submit to our own notion of how the Holy Spirit should have done it if He'd been as smart as we are. And this is my basic hermeneutic about the approach to Scripture. I always say, what do we not like about the text? <laughs> you know, because I figure that's where we need to focus. If it is the Word of God, then we should focus on the part we don't like and not the part we like, because the part we don't like is probably where we're disobedient or too proud to submit, right? Right? I mean, I think it's a basic, good sort of approach, right? I hope I do. And so here Paul ends this list by saying those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've studied the book of Galatians, and it's clear the church in Galatia, the church Paul is writing to, has a number of men who are not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, but rather these works of the flesh. And so after Paul lists the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, and then the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, he returns to his work of building the unity of that church. Look back at verse 15 and you'll see what his larger concern is. In verse 15, you see what it is. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You know, you think about a shark that's injured in the water and blood starts coming out of it. What happens immediately? The other sharks turn on it and they consume it. And this is an exact description of many elders' meetings that I've been in. One person shows some weakness and the others devour him. Last week I spent a number of hours on the phone with a pastor in a church where the church had had to, to release uh, somebody who... Um, was an employee of the church for things that were quite serious. 
And I remember discussing with this pastor when this was going to happen, I remember discussing with him about what would happen after they released this employee. And we talked about the uh, tension it would cause among the board of elders, the tension it would cause in the church, the misunderstanding of the people in the church. There was no other way. It had to be done. But we knew it wouldn't be accepted. Well, now months later, what's happened is some of the people in the church have gone to uh, one of the key elders and have talked to him and are quite upset over what happened, what the elders did. Well, that man now is questioning whether the elders did what was right. And so what does he do? Does he come into an elders board and say to the elders board, men, I've grown, grown weak in this decision and I want you to remind me why we made the decision. We prayed. Help me. I'm weak. No, that's never how it happens, is it? That man goes and attacks another elder about something that's only sort of related. And he says, look at that sin, look at that sin, look at that sin. What's really going on is that there's blood in the congregation, in the elders' board. There's weakness, there's brokenness, there's fear, there's all this, this blood. And, and so what it causes to happen is it causes them to attack each other. I remember being in an elders' meeting a number of years ago where uh, the habit with those elders' meetings was to go for four to six hours every time we met and uh, to just fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. And it had been going on for years. It was such a problem that they, they had to meet every week because they didn't have enough time to fight once a month. It's true. And they had to start early. It started the elders' meetings when I got there at four in the afternoon. Um, I remember one time, uh, one of the elders reading this verse. This verse, but if you divide and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And, you know, I talk about elders' meetings, and all I'm talking about are the same things that go on in your marriage and in your home. You know, the truth is, husbands and wives bite and devour each other. The truth is our children do it. We do it in cars. That's why they have traffic cops. The courts are filled with it. We do it. This is who we are. Bob's house has biting and devouring of one another. You do it in the pews. You look at other people and the whole worship service is ruined because you find yourself envying them. As you sit down to worship... And we bite and we devour one another. And so this is the context that the Apostle Paul is dealing with these Galatians. Now, how does he deal with the fact that they're biting and devouring each other? Well, he, does, he deals with it in two ways. First, he deals with it by correcting their false doctrine. And then he deals with it by correcting their false practice. There's always a two-prong to this. Something that they believe that's wrong, they shouldn't believe it, or something they don't believe that's right and they should believe it, and something they're doing that they shouldn't be doing or that they're not doing that they should be doing. He starts with the doctrine. Very heavy emphasis in Galatians on doctrine. Doctrine, proper doctrine, leads to unity. All right? Where there is disunity, it's typical that there is both something that you're believing that's wrong or something that you're doing that's wrong. All right, and, I should say and, not or. 
And so he starts with the doctrine, and he has a long section about the doctrine of Christ's righteousness. That it's not our self-righteousness. That we can't be circumcised, return to the law, and think we can stand before God. We can't do it. But now, at the end of, of the book, he turns to practice. It's called orthodoxy, orthopraxis. All right? He turns to how we live with each other, and he says, if you keep biting and devouring each other, then there's going to be nothing left of you. And here we're in the section where he's talking about the practice. And he says, at the end of verse 21, he's listed the fruit of the flesh, the things that the flesh produces, and he says, those who practice, I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what this shows us is that the Apostle Paul did not warn them once about this, but that he was in the habit of warning them. I have warned you, I now warn you again. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So much is at stake in this division in that church and in this battle at the center of the Galatians church. And Paul hits hard against the division. Now, a lot of people comment about the book of Galatians how the Apostle Paul assumes that those caught in the many errors that filled that church are nevertheless believers. And, and they point out that Paul treats them as Christians, not as unbelievers. But I want you to notice our text. Paul keeps the pressure on with a little word that's at the very center of the text we're studying this week. And what's the little word? Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then there's the little word. What is it? If. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, one translation, I believe that it is the NIV, but I could be wrong about this, translates it not if, but since. Doesn't that feel better? Since we walk by the Spirit, let us live by the Spirit. whole different feeling between if and since, isn't there? If calls us to self-examination. Since calls us to simply continue what we're already doing. Right? That if is, is a tense word, ace in Greek. And so what we have here is uh, a connection between what's here or uh, a foundation here that, that it has to be under what is here. That's what the Greek indicates, that, that this is a prerequisite. All right. And again, what does it say? It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And I want you, brothers and sisters, to see that this word if is the fulcrum of the book of Galatians. Now, I don't mean this particular word, if, in this particular text, but I just mean it's all through the text of Galatians. The church in Galatia has true shepherds, namely who? Who? Paul. And it has unfaithful shepherds. Who? The, yeah, the Judaizers are the apostles of circumcision. Okay, if on the one hand, Paul, on the other hand, the prophets, the apostles, the shepherds of circumcision. All right. 
And again and again, the Apostle Paul is telling both in doctrine and in practice how to distinguish. Remember, postmodernism hates distinctions. It hates them. The distinction between man and woman, it hates. That's the very identity of postmodernism. But what is baptism in the Lord's Supper? It's a distinction that is visible, that's absolute, and that you are not to violate. This is why many missionaries today are not baptizing, because distinctions go against the culture of postmodernism. And they don't want to have the church make it clear who is saved and who is not saved, who is born again and who is not born again. All right? But the Apostle Paul is real big on distinctions, and the whole book of Galatians is focusing on how, both in what you believe and what you do, you're able to see the difference between the people of God and the people of Satan, of the world, of the flesh, the people who are not saved. And so here we see that he's going on and making this distinction. And Martin Luther, on this very text that we're studying this morning, begins his huge commentary on the book of Galatians. You think I'm bad? Read Martin Luther. All right? He has a whole section on this section, but here's how he begins that section. These are the first two sentences of his section on here. He says, This whole place concerning works shows that the true believers are not hypocrites. Therefore, let no man deceive himself. This whole thing is about showing up hypocrites, so don't deceive yourself. That's how Luther begins his comments on this section. In verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, if those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, what? There's something that necessarily follows that you should have in your brain. Namely, those who do not belong to Christ Jesus have not crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One can't be true without the other being true. And this is what Jesus meant when Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Either or. When we take up our cross, we nail... Remember, it says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we take up our cross, we nail, we mortify, we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires through prayer, through fasting, through self-control, and this is necessary. This is necessary. And yes, our sin has been placed on Christ Jesus and His cross. And once and for all, our unrighteousness has been crucified by Christ. We have taken on His righteousness. We bear our sin no more. But Paul now and the Holy Spirit now calls us to tape up our cross also and to join Him in learning obedience through the things that He suffered. How would it be that Jesus would take up His cross, but we wouldn't? How do you say Jesus learned obedience through the things that we suffered, but we're going to not learn obedience because we don't need it? Jesus was obedient, so we didn't have to be. What are we saved to? We're saved to holiness. We're saved to righteousness. We're saved to taking up our cross. Through the Apostle Paul, we are told here to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are told that. We're not told to simply observe the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds of our flesh. We're commanded to put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
It's quite true that this is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's also quite true that this is the work that our Lord Jesus has saved us to. We are to be a holy people and we are commanded by Him to participate in the work of His Spirit in us, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. The Holy Spirit states as much without any double talk in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And it is those who are alive in Christ who live by the Holy Spirit who therefore also walk by the Holy Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So the same question is asked here in a number of ways. Do we belong to Christ Jesus? Have we crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? Do we live by the Spirit? Do we walk by the Spirit? Or rather, are we boastful, challenging, and envying one another? And so all through the book of Galatians, Paul is presenting two ways. And he is forcing a good and a healthy and a true and a peaceable division within the Galatian church. How does that happen? How do you force a good and excellent division among the people of God? By submitting to the discipline that God has ordained rather than creating ones of our own. <laughs> okay, now why am I laughing? Well, I'm laughing because we always have division. Always. There's always division. Always. Do you know what I'm saying? Insofar as we refuse to submit to the discipline of God, we will have the discipline of the evil one. Insofar as we refuse to submit to the divisions of God, we will always give ourselves to the divisions of the evil one. You know, if we're not willing to recognize that God is always dividing people between those He has poured His Spirit out on and those He hasn't. He is always about making it clear where that division is. And if we try to cloud that over, guess what will happen? We'll fight about all kinds of other things. And it will all be about ourselves, about our pride, about our excellence. We turn away from the divisions that are true and eternal, caused by the work of the Spirit, and we will manufacture divisions on our own. Because why? Because our flesh will run rampant, and that's what our flesh does. Our flesh creates divisions. I want to list a few of the divisions that are true, which are spoken of in Scripture. In the book of Galatians, there is the way of death and the way of life, the way of cursing and the way of blessing, the way of the righteousness of the flesh, namely circumcision, and the way of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The way that brings the approval of man, namely the false apostles. The Apostle Paul says what? He says, I only want the approval of God. The way that brings the approval of God. The way of hypocrisy, the way of true salvation, the way of being made right before God by the works of the law, the way of being made right before God by faith in Jesus Christ. The way of the flesh, the way of the Holy Spirit, the way of the one who is a slave to demons, the way of the one who is an adopted son of God. The way of the bondwoman and the way of the free woman. The way of the bondwoman son Ishmael and the way of the free woman son Isaac. The way of those who are severed from Christ and the way of those who are united with Christ. I'm just haphazardly tripping through the book of Galatians and showing these consistent divisions that the Apostle Paul is making. It is always either or. It's one or the other. 
And here again in verses 24 to 26, we see it. Those who belong to Jesus, those who do not belong to Jesus. Those who have crucified the flesh, those who have not crucified the flesh. Those who live by the Spirit, those who do not live by the Spirit. Those who walk by the Spirit, those who do not walk by the Spirit. So if a man were to tell us that Galatians is written to a church in very bad trouble and that Paul doesn't call the legitimacy of that church as a true Christian church into question, And so we ought not to call the legitimacy of a church into question today either. It's not exactly a true summary of what Paul says in Galatians, is it? Apostle Paul is not making a theological statement about whether there are any false churches here. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a group of Christians. And he's he's running the meat cleaver through them. And he's saying, which side are you on? And the book of Galatians is completely about choosing sides. I mean, everything about it is about choosing sides. Every time we look at the book of Galatians, you are called to choose one side or the other. He's dealing with doctrinal error and he's dealing with sins within that church and he's using every tool in his power to correct that church and her leaders in order to bring them back to the cross to faith in Jesus Christ alone and to the true unity that always comes from that right right what gives us unity when Christ is magnified and if we don't magnify Christ Who do we magnify? It's always ourselves. What were the false apostles doing? It was all about winning disciples for themselves. And so what do we do today? I mean, there's a reason why this section ends with him saying what? What does he say at the end of this section? I've got to find where I am. Ever since I started printing on two sides of the paper, I get confused. But it fits into my Bible so much more thinly. He says at the end, let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. You know, it's very interesting. You know what Martin Luther says on this section? He says, there is no village wherein there is not someone or other to be found that would be counted wiser and be more esteemed than all the rest. It's not even a village. Now, what's the application of this this to us as a church? Well, first of all, um, be aware that just as pride, uh, Augustine says that pride is the mother of all heresies. All right? Be aware that pride in yourself personally is a damnable trait and will inevitably cause you to be divided from your wife, from your children, and from everyone else. But you know, pride doesn't just exist in an individual sense. It also exists in an individual's relationship to a group, and it it also exists in groups. One of the applications of this is that if you find yourself resenting not getting the honor you think is due in your marriage and in your home and in this church, be careful. Because your sense of envy of how other people get honor and you don't will easily be the thing that drives you out of your home, out of your marriage, and out of a church. You understand what I'm saying? 
If you don't think you're being honored by your wife or husband the way you deserve to be honored, this is behind an awful lot of divorce. Now it's come to the church. I could go on. I told you this is easily three weeks of sermons. I could go on for a long time about how envy and jealousy and pride divide churches. And so you think, well, yeah, you know, churches can divide and one group goes off here and another group stays there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people who leave a particular fellowship. Why do they leave a fellowship? Almost always it is pride. Pride is the mother of heresy, of schism. Now, what kind of pride would cause somebody to leave a church? Well, if somebody doesn't think that their gifts have been recognized, and so they split. They don't... They, They're not going to stick around. They're going to go to a church where their gifts are recognized. No. (laughs) No, that's not what happens. They don't go to a church where their gifts are recognized. What they do is go to a church that's large enough that the lack of recognition of their gifts isn't so painful. I mean, do you understand that? You know, find an anonymous place where you can camp out and then you don't have to take anything personally. And I would guess that's 50% of the growth of megachurches in America today. People don't have to take anything personally because they don't have any expectations because you show up, you can stay in your car, there's a screen, you know. Well, how else? Well, another way is people leave a church because the church isn't growing the way they think it should grow and it's humiliating to be at a church that isn't growing the way the megachurches are doesn't reflect well on you. What kind of taste do you have? You know? You shop at Walmart? You know? Where the parking lot's dirty? You know? What kind of church are you at? Oh, that church. (laughs) Yeah, that church. It's real quiet in this room right now. It's so humiliating to not be a part of the boom environment of megachurches, you know? Just think, we could have a pastor who um, we turn on WTSO and, you know, he's there. And, and, and we drive down the street and they're there. And, and, and the money, the money of that church, I don't have to feel so responsible at a church like that. <laughs> My giving isn't as important in a church like that. And so we resent the fact that God has chosen to humble us as a church and we go to a church that's proud. Because the pride wears off on us, you know? No, you wouldn't do that, would you? I know you don't like it when I smile at times. (laughs) You guys, this is who we are. Come on. You know, we want to be at a school, at a church, driving a car. We want everything about our lives to be clean. And a church that isn't growing is dirty. You know? It would kind of like being going to East Appalachian State College. And then like putting that down on a job application. You know, where did you attend? <coughs> I have my degree from <coughs> MIT. <coughs> Are you East Appalachian State College, Junior College, East Appalachian Junior College, outside of Hazard, Kentucky? That's what it's like to be at a church that's small today, isn't it? And so people say to themselves, 
ain't for me. We must be doing something wrong. What are we doing wrong? Well, I can tell you a whole bunch of things we're doing wrong. I talked to my son about one of them right before I came up here. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of wrong things, but let me ask you the question. Uh, why do you think God has us in a church that is small? I know why. you have a guess? Do you know what Jesus says to us when things are going well? Particularly pastors. You know what He said? He said, what? Woe, what? Woe, woe unto you when what? All men speak well of you. You know what? Your pastors are principially committed. Your elders are principially committed to doing things that will cause people to speak evil of them. Not because they want to be spoken evil of, but because they know that when they remove themselves from the harness of faithfully witnessing to what God says, that then men will speak well of them and something's wrong! You think something's wrong when a church is small? <laughs> I'll use a little phrase that we have in our home. And it requires a story. Hannah was riding in the car with my cousin John D. Walt, whose, fa- whose father was a huge muckety-muck in the Gideons organization. His wife was Gideons. And so John was describing to Hannah the fact that his father was a Gideon. And Hannah listened to this, and, and Hannah got very, very confused. And, and finally she looked at John and she said, Why are you saying that about your father? And John said, What? And, and Hannah said, Why? Well, I, I don't think it's respectful. And John said, Well, what? what? And, and, and what it came out was that every time John said his dad was a Gideon, Anna thought he was saying his dad was an idiot. And so we look at each other in our home and we say, what are you, a Gideon? Okay, so here's my question to you as a church. You want to be successful? You want elders and pastors that no man ever speaks evil of? What are you, a Gideon? It can't happen. We are not here for all men to speak well of us. Now, we might make errors where we're spoken evil of. I might be resented because I passed somebody in a no-passing zone. That's easy to believe. And that's no credit to me. But man, when you have David Carell standing up at the city council meeting saying no to the promotion of sexual perversity in this community and you're not proud of him, I say to you, you need to go to a megachurch. Do you understand me? This is not that church. Why? Because we fear jealousy and envy and pride. And we fear when all men speak well of us. Because we fear God. And we see the paths. And we know what those paths are. And on the left hand, there is those who do not walk according to the Spirit, whom all men speak well of. And on the right hand, are those who are broken, and sinful and repenting. The first of the 95 theses and the last two of the 95 theses, all of them say that the Christian life is a life of repentance. (laughs) And so what do we do as elders? We repent. One final story and I'll end. I promise. A week ago I was at a soccer game. And you know how I'm talking, I'm preaching on evangelism, right? 
And so that means that I'm leading by example, right? Wrong. So I'm at this soccer game. And, and, and this is, of course, something I shouldn't tell you, you know, because I want you to have me high and lifted up in my train filling the temple, you know. But I'm at this soccer game, and there's a, a fairly quiet man on Taylor's soccer team, or his son is, and he turns to me with a, a number of the other cool dude men. We're all sitting together. The wives are here. We're over here. And he says to me, so what's going on with that building of yours? And you know what I did? I looked at him and I said, eh, not much. And he looks at me and he says, so, so what's happening? I say, oh, it's going okay. And I look away. It's clear to him that I don't want to talk to him. And I'm preaching on evangelism. Aren't I great? Good example. So I leave and I get thinking about it. You know what I was doing? I was humiliated because... Every time we tell this community we're going to do something, what happens? We don't do it. <laughs> hmm. And it is humiliating. And you know, this humiliation for me comes on top of being kicked out of ECC. And so it's really humiliating. In fact, it seems like my midlife crisis has been humiliation. Now, are you surprised? Come on, be honest. The answer is no. None of you are surprised. Maybe some of you are, but that means you're new here. Okay? And so what did I need to do? What did I need to do? Come on, tell me. I needed to go back to him and to apologize. You know? And so I did that this week during Taylor's practice over at Tommy's soccer school. I sat down next to him, started once but didn't have the guts to continue it. But then I started again, and I told him, I'm sorry for the way I brushed you off last week. I said, the truth is I'm humiliated. Well, guess what? Turns out he's just started a new career, not a new career, but at a new institution, and they're just opening up a commercial loaning division. And the reason he was asking was he wanted to know whether we'd run into banking problems and might be able to help. So, brothers and sisters, listen. Don't have a false view of this church. Don't have a false view of the benefits and the value of humiliation. If you can't make your reads the way you wish you could and other people can, that's a gift from God. If you can't attract women the way other men can, that's a gift from God. If you're not in a position of leadership the way other men are, that's a gift from God. If you have a pastor who makes you look like a fool in front of this community on closed caption television, that's a gift from God. Okay? And if God chooses to never give us a building, that's a gift from God. All right? And now we're out of time, so stand up and I'll give the benediction and we'll leave.